Don't you hate that? Hate what? Uncomfortable silences. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And let's do it. The patented Duff McKagan joke of the week. Hey, Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling. Hope everybody's doing great. Um, listen, I got this morning, somebody stole my uh, my limbo bar. I mean, how low can you go? Thank you very much. Goodbye. Duff always delivers amazing joke from Duff. Uh, making us laugh every single Friday, even when he's on tour with Guns N' Roses. Uh, but I'm going to cut right straight to the show. It's a good one today. It's a lengthy one, but lots of great details and information. Talking about Quentin Tarantino films, we're going to rank them all with uh, with uh, Mike Portnoy, a member of the Fab Three, and, of course, Jojo Feeney uh, from Keeping It 100 with Conan. Both these guys have been on Talk is Jericho a few times. And the three of us are going to count down the Tarantino movies from our least favorite to our favorite, starting right now on Talk is Jericho. Ooh, that's a bingo. <laughs> is that the way you say it? That's a bingo. You just say bingo. Bingo, how fun. So one of the my favorite things about Talk is Jericho is kind of introducing uh, people who've never met but have very similar likes uh, I actually did this, Mike, you'll get a kick out of this, and Jojo, you will too, with Charlie uh, Benanti and Sami Zayn, we reviewed the White Album. Sami Zayn uh. is in the WWE, and so they'd never met before, and today we've got Mike Portnoy, the other member of the Fab Three, yeah. drummer extraordinaire, and uh, Jojo Feeney, who's the producer of Keeping It 100 with Conan and uh, Creative Control, your podcast, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, sir. But we want to talk about um, Tarantino movies. And Joe, you actually came up with this idea and we were trying to find who, who a good third would be. And right away I knew, oh, it's got to be Mike Portnoy. Because Mike, you can jump right in. Tarantino is one of your all-time favorite directors and you are a fanatic for certain directors. I am. I, I mean, I have my list of my top 10. Tarantino is, is number three, which uh, sounds like, oh man, why isn't he number one? But I mean, he's only behind Stanley Kubrick and David Lynch. So those are big, <laughs> big boys to... to pass uh so yeah he's he's my number three and for the longest time i was wrestling with tarantino versus paul thomas anderson because they came out both came out in the 90s and pt anderson came out with boogie nights and magnolia two of my favorites of all time and tarantino came out with reservoir dogs and pulp fiction two of my favorites at all time so for so many years it's like they were neck neck to neck but through the years uh tarantino has surpassed anderson i think he's just the stronger body of work in fact i think there's no director in modern film uh with a stronger body of work than tarantino i mean it's just every film and we'll get into it but every single one is is a masterpiece within itself as far as i'm concerned joe you feel the same way yeah and that's why making a, a list is so difficult you know and and some you're like why why would i have this solo and oh i can't i can't do anything about it you know but i knew i knew mike was was great for this uh, i don't know mike but uh you know nice to meet you of course but he has the red apple cigarettes t-shirt on which i, <laughs> and I came in with the bounty law shirt so we're <laughs> that's great yeah I, I, I had nothing so i just wrote mr pink 
Mr. Pink. On my description. <laughs> you chose Mr. Pink. Steve Buscemi was so upset about it. He didn't want it. But you wanted it. You actually. Because of Steve Buscemi. You know what <laughs> I mean? I, I didn't want to throw in a dollar in the tip uh, in the tip jar either. But When I met Steve Buscemi, I introduced him to my daughter as Mr. Pink. Yeah. <laughs> But the thing is, Joe, it's interesting because you had this idea and we did this last year. I was telling Mike uh, for Stephen King books, we, we rated our top 10. But the difference here is Tarantino only has 10 movies, nine movies, as Mike and I discussed last night at 2.30 in the morning. But it is split into two parts, Kill Bill 1 and Kill Bill 2. And I, I always kind of like that about Tarantino, the fact that his movies are very much an event. Every Tarantino movie becomes like, oh, my gosh, you got to see it. Uh, every two, three, four, five, six years even. It's not like, you know, for example, I don't know if you want to say Steven Spielberg is your favorite director. There's probably 50 Spielberg movies at this point. Not with Tarantino, not including the ones that he wrote, etc. The, the true Tarantino movies, there is only 10. So that makes them that much more special. And each one is iconic as a result. Yeah, I remember seeing the, the first trailer and teaser for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and just, I think it came out like a year previous and just waiting and waiting and waiting. My dad and I went very early. I don't, I don't know if it was opening day, but it was probably the first weekend. And uh, you had a theater full of people that felt the same way, like they had been waiting. You know, it, it is. It's like an event. I've seen all of his films except for Reservoir Dogs. Uh, that one I, I saw after it came out. But after that, I saw every one of his films on opening night. And they're usually around oh. Christmas. Yeah. For, if you look at the release dates, they're almost always like it's always like a Christmas event. And I would always cut out from Christmas dinner to go see <laughs> opening night, the new Tarantino. And I've seen every one of them opening night. You know, it's interesting because I'm just actually looking up when Pulp Fiction was actually released. 94. But I'm trying to find out the exact date of 94 because I, I was going to ask you guys, what your first kind of exposure to Tarantino was. Okay, so 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 Pulp Fiction was technically, uh, yeah, October 14th, 1994 is when it was introduced. So I remember, I'll just jump right in here. I used to read, because in 94 I was living in, uh, in Tennessee. I was working for Smoky Mountain Wrestling Joe in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I used to be really into, and I'm sure you were too, Mike, you must have been, Entertainment Weekly magazine. Mm. Yeah, big time. Monthly, because always in the airport or, or whatever, I would go out of my way to find it and read it. This is pre-phones, pre-internet, where you could find out news very quickly. This kind of had all the news in it. And I remember them constantly talking about this movie, Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir Dogs. And at first, I thought it was like, like, a, like a watership down or something, where it was like about dogs. <laughs> like maybe cartoon dogs or something like this. And the other thing was my best friend at the time, who is Dr. Luther now, he still is one of my best friends. His middle name is Quentin, Leonard Quentin Olson. And we used to laugh how nobody in the world had this name Quentin. So a combination of Quentin, the director, with Reservoir Dogs at Entertainment Weekly kept shoving down my throat. I actually saw Reservoir first before I saw Pulp Fiction because when we were living in Tennessee, we had really nothing to do in between matches because you work, work two or three times a week. So we found that movie and watched it. So I was actually there right from the start, but via video. How about you, Mike? What was your first exposure to Tarantino? Uh, same thing, a different story, but same thing. You know, uh, I, I too read Entertainment Weekly every week, but even beyond that, I also subscribed to Premier Magazine back oh. then. <laughs> and, uh, and then I also... I guess around the late 80s when Spike Lee put out Do the Right Thing, I got really interested in like independent film, you know. So I started learning about Spike Lee and then Kevin Smith came out with Clerks. And, and I remember uh, Kevin Smith thanked 
like Jim Jarmish and, and Richard Linklater in the thank you list for clerks. So I started investigating all these indie filmmakers. And then I, I, re I read a book by this guy, John Pearson, all about independent filmmaking in the late 80s, early 90s. And in the book, he mentions Quentin Tarantino and Reservoir Dogs. So I was making, as I was reading this book, I was making a list of all the filmmakers and all the films that were named and made my, you know, my watch list. And sure enough, like you, I thought Reservoir Dogs was going to be, I don't know, I just, I, I didn't know what it was going to be like, you know, a war movie or whatever. But when I actually went to, to Blockbuster and rented it and popped it in, it just blew my mind. Because first of all, I loved I loved the dialogue immediately caught me. The opening scene, I mean, we'll get into it more later, but the opening scene with the dialogue and Madonna and the tipping, I was like, what? This is a masterful <laughs> writing. And then the opening shot in slow motion with Little Green Bag, it was so Scorsese, I was immediately hooked. And then the, the, the music and the violence and the, and the nonlinear format, I was immediately hooked. I was like, this guy is a freaking genius. And sure enough, I, I went opening nights of Pulp Fiction and I was on board ever since. It's interesting because you mentioned Kevin Smith and I, I, actually Kevin and I did a watch along of Pulp Fiction on Talk is Jericho wow, about a year that's ago, amazing. which was great. And, and he actually had some great points because Clerks and Paul, uh, Paul basically came out at the same time and they were both at Cannes together. It's just that Tarantino was there with the big leagues and Kevin was kind of there, you know, nickel and diamond it. But they are very similar because that's the first thing I noticed about Reservoir and it's the first thing I noticed about Clerks was the dialogue. And the one from Clerks that sticks out to me, like the Madonna and the Tipping, is the uh, independent contractors yeah, working the on the Death Star. Star. Yeah. And were they innocent uh, people? Yeah. So there really was a dichotomy between these two guys and really has been ever since. Absolutely. Joe, what was your first exposure? I know this this won't count for any of our lists, but I saw True Romance first, mm. and his name was you know you know written sure. by Quentin, and it had that iconic music at the beginning. So I, that's had my first exposure to him. But I first saw Pulp Fiction. It was actually in '94 at my grandfather's house in South Philly, and he had one of those uh, illegal. There's no quotes. Illegal cable boxes. <laughs> so the pay per view channels like '98, '99 showed a movie over and over and over again, and actually. Being only 13 or whatever, maybe he shouldn't have directed me to Pulp Fiction, but he was telling me the stories. He's like, you got to see it, this and that. And I, I remember watching on his pay-per-view and just being blown away because I was a kid that, you know, we talked about it with Stephen King. Like, I got into adult stuff early. I was reading novels early, R-rated movies early and stuff. So Pulp Fiction was was phenomenal. And uh, and it's, it's you know, the first impression was amazing. I couldn't believe what I was watching. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. We couldn't have planned this better. You guys look like... What do they look like, Jimmy? Dorks. <laughs> they look like a couple of dorks. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. You're clothes, mother. Come on, gentlemen. We're laughing our way right into prison. Don't make me beg. So we'll get started at number 10 with our least favorite Tarantino film, if you can even say that. But first, I want to say a quick thanks to Geico for supporting Talk is Jericho. Now, do you own or rent your home? If you do, you know it can be hard work. But you know what's easy is bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already got so much to do around your home. Go to geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico Easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. D-J-A-N-G-O. The D is silent. Well, I mean, let's jump in because there's a lot to discuss here, and we're kind of already discussing some of the movies anyways. And, like, this is all almost like a classic album clash 
where every movie is a masterpiece in one way or another. And this is all basically just personal uh, opinions, but you got to start somewhere. So let's, we're going to go. We decided that, that Kill Bill will be two separate parts, uh, not as a whole, because he hasn't released the whole, the whole bloody affair yet. So we'll do those as two separate parts, and we'll do, we'll do from 10 to 1. Your quote-unquote, there's no air quotes, but the quote-unquote least favorite Tarantino to your favorite. So uh, in that uh, mindset, we'll start with number 10. Mike, you want to you kick it off? I'm, I'm curious to hear what your least favorite Tarantino is. It's impossible because, like you said, they're all great. And even my number 10, I love. You know, I love every one of these films. And and it is interesting that we're counting him as 10 because he counts them as nine. Like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood opens, you know, the ninth film by Quentin Tarantino. Right. You're right. You're right. Because he counts Kill Bill as one because he filmed it as one and then split it. But we're going to do 10. Uh, so my number 10 is Jackie Brown. And and once again, I love it as well. But coming off the one two punch of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, you know, when I saw Jackie Brown in the theater, I couldn't help but be slightly disappointed because it was more of a, almost like a love story, or it's really a love story, his love story for, uh, you know, for her, for Pam, Pam, Pam yeah. Greer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it didn't have the violence and, uh, and the, the, you know, it wasn't fast paced. You know, it was kind of like P.T. Anderson's Hard Eight. You know, I always compared the t- those two. But that being said, I think as time passed, you know, and I'm not watching it with these expectations, and I can now appreciate it for what it is. I've grown to appreciate it a lot more, and I love Robert De Niro's performance in it is so amazing, and, and uh, of course Samuel L. Jackson. I mean, he's you know he's just the mainstay for Tarantino, but uh, uh, that's probably one of his. Uh, actually, all of his performances and all of these are great, but yeah, I think that was the one that was the most disappointing upon first viewing. So. Uh, it's the number 10 position, but once again, I love it still. I think the best way to kind of go through this, and how do we do it with the Stephen King, Jojo? If 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 we if he's, if Mike talks about Jackie, do we jump in and talk about Jackie as a whole, or do we wait till it's our turn? We're doing a little bit of both, so. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I, I think we could do a little bit of both. But the thing about Jackie Brown, too, and I, I really equate it to, and you'll really appreciate this because it was your former band, Mike. When you guys had scenes from a memory which is such a classic, or ACDC has Back in Black, it's really hard to follow that up. And you guys did it with Six Degrees, with a double album, and kind of less songs but longer time. ACDC kind of had a little bit of a different vibe with, with For Those About to Rock. I find it was very hard for Tarantino to follow Pulp Fiction. And no matter what he put out, people are going to look at it kind of like, it's not quite as good. And so he did kind of go a different direction and basing it on the, you know, the Elmore James novel. Elmore James, not some blues guy. Uh, Elmore Leonard, I think, right? Elmore Leonard. Rum Punch, right? Yeah, yeah. But I just, I felt like, once again, I think going back and watching it now in 2021, it's a million times better than it was watching it in 1997 when it came out because your expectations are built up far too high. You know, that's the way I saw that, that film for sure. It's the same... And I hate to keep making the comparison, but the same with P.T. Anderson. After Boogie Nights and Magnolia, where do you go? So he makes Punch Drug Love with, with Adam Sandler, which is like a completely a left turn. And I guess you have to make a left turn after something like Pulp Fiction. You, get, you can't possibly follow Pulp Fiction with something else like Pulp Fiction. It's just impossible. Right, exactly. Joe, what do you got? 
just real quick on Jackie, I think we'll find that my Jackie Brown is ranked higher only because I didn't, I saw it in like a, a vacuum of a few years ago. I didn't have it with that expectation from Reservoir well, Dogs go. and Pulp exactly. Sound Jack. Okay, when so, we yeah. get to it, we can rediscuss on your end. So what do you have for number 10? 10, uh, starting out starting out tough. I'd I like to see if anyone agrees. Uh, Django Unchained. Ooh, wow. I don't know how much agreement there's going to be when people hear this too, but out of the catalog, and like I said, I've done a lot of rewatching the past few weeks and stuff. I was doing it before before we scheduled this, and it's just the one that I has the least rewatch value for me. There's great stuff, you know. Christoph Waltz is obviously great, and uh, DiCaprio scene where he uh, breaks the glass with his hand for real. You're kind of watching for that, and the intensity in his acting. There's stuff in there that's great, of course, but I, I did find that it had the least amount. Like if it's on, I'm not necessarily going to just go right to it, like uh, you know, a Pulp Fiction or something like that. It just it just had the least amount of rewatch value for me, so that's how it ends up at ten. Interesting. Okay, well, I'll save my judgment for when we get to it but uh my number 10 is uh one that i was looking really forward to and it's not that i dislike it but but the rewatch value is not there and that's hateful eight i found this movie because i i i like mike said first maybe not opening night but first week i was there i love kurt russell i have since i was a little kid the world's strongest man and you know all those disney movies that he used to make all the way up to the movies that he makes now I just found all those characters very unlikable, which might have been the point. But as a result, there was no real hero to the movie, except for Kurt, who ends up, you know, spoiler alert, dying very early on and en- ends up playing mostly just a dead body chained to uh, to Jennifer Jason Lee for the most part. So I found it. I also found, too, that this was the point where he went a little bit too long. I think it was like kind of like a a modern day Iron Maiden record where you're like, this is a crux is good, but it's we don't need 14 minutes of this riff. It would have been much better at nine or eight. And I felt it was very, very long for me. He's been making he long ones. I mean, if you look at Hateful Eight, uh, Django, Bastards, and even Hollywood, they're all like coming up on three hours, you know, each of them. And I don't mind. I mean, I, I, I can, can't get enough. Do you think it might have something to do with the fact that his his longtime editor, editor you know, Sally yeah. Mankey, if that's Mankey, is that how you pronounce it? Mankey? Yeah. So people who don't know that Quentin was very tightly bound and 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 and, and what's the word I'm looking for? Influenced by she was a, a you know one one of his uh, right hand men, shall we say, as his editor, and she passed away, I believe right before bastards or right after i'm not sure we'll have to probably find that out it might have been after death proof which was the shortest the shortest of all these and then i'm not sure the timeline either but yeah all these long ones that we're talking about i think are post uh yeah which which that could be one of the reasons why all these movies are so long now because he doesn't have her to tell him hey man you gotta yeah she died september 28 2010 so anything that happened after 2010 uh she was not involved with yeah, so she did uh, Death Proof, she did Bastards, yeah, and then, then after that. Right, so right after Bastards, she passed away, yeah. So, um, But I just found, yeah, like I said, for Hateful Eight, I found that very long. And unlike Bastards and a lot of these other flicks, there there didn't they, they, there wasn't a, a very likable character. So it is... Oh, th- I don't think there's a single likable character in Hateful Eight, is there? There really isn't. No. Well, I got one. Zoe Bell as oh, the oh, yeah. very greeter that, that greets them into the... Uh, into at the, the very uh, at the very end or whatever it is, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Other than that, every, all the eight And I mean, terrible. just, just like, Kurt Russell just beating the shit out of <laughs> the freaking... Yeah. 
Jennifer Jason Leigh. Just like, oh my gosh, dude. Like, I get it, but like, Tarantino's never subtle. Like, if he's gonna say the N word, he's gonna say it sixty times. If he's gonna punch a woman, he's gonna beat the shit out of her and have her keep coming back to her. Like, just stop, please. Everybody's puking blood on her. I mean, Jennifer Jason Leigh just. Oh. She's just a punching bag in that one. Yeah. Oh my god, it's covered in blood, and her teeth yeah. are knocked out. Uh, it's just, it's just, it's uncomfortable to watch. So, uh, yeah. not one of my favorites, but still, there's some great performances, and it is Tarantino. So, but uh, all right, uh, Jojo, what do you got for number nine? Uh, Kill Bill one. Oh, okay. And uh, when we get to two, I'll, I'll be able to explain a little bit more why one is. Uh, I mean, it's crazy. Obviously, all the crazy uh, stunt work and everything done into the final fights and all that, and it in- introduces you to, the, to most of the characters. But for me, with Tarantino, a lot of it is you know dialogue, story, all that. This was like, you know, there was a lot, a little bit in the beginning, but the bulk of it was just action, just samurai fight, you know. And uh, that might people might, might like that a lot, but for me, I, I like his dialogue and stuff like that a little bit more. So, yeah, yeah, I think um, it is one of the things, like Mike said. That that Quentin considers Kill Bill as two as one movie, but for us as, as theater goers, it was too because I I think putting this all together, it's just a great story. But it was really hard to have it end after one because it was like it was just getting going, and then it was done, you know. And I'll just I'll just jump right in. My number nine is Kill Bill two for that exact reason because Kill Bill one is kind of building up. The, the story and there's so much on the front end that there's not as much on the back end. But if you saw it all together, you'd realize that the first was the action and the second was kind of the dialogue. And it was hard to kind of, okay, come down from the action. And then a year later, like, what do we, what happened again? Who is, who is and all, and all these other ones. Yeah. So two was, 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 was harder for me to digest. And I would really love to see this all together in one full even turning it from one to two would bothers me now. I want it all in one to just watch. Now talk about length though. That would probably be four, four five it, hours. Yeah, it would be right. Yeah. So you, would, but but then again, my wife just watched, and and Joe, you probably know this. What is the uh the, the is it the Justice League Zack Schneider cut where it's like four and a half hours long? The director's cut of this Justice League movie, and it's like you're really gonna watch this for four hours. But she did, and she loved it. So I think guys like us could appreciate that for for kill bill as well what do you got for number nine my number nine is is death proof okay once again i i love it i love everything he's done it's it's also interesting because that's the last film he's made uh that takes place in modern times mm. because his his last four films were all period pieces interesting great point yeah so that's the last tarantino we've had that's in modern day but um I saw it in the theater. I went and saw Grindhouse. I went and had the whole experience. So the the version I saw in the theater was shorter. Yeah. And it worked really well. I loved going to the theater, having the coming attractions, the Eli Roth and yeah. the, uh, uh, who else? Edgar Wright had one and uh, all those, the, tra- the fake yeah. trailers and the intermission and just the whole experience of the double feature. I loved it. It was so great with the, you know, that the, the film is ripping and tearing and grainy and, you know, suddenly like scenes just stop halfway through. And yeah. I thought the whole Grindhouse, like 70s idea was brilliant and I loved it. But uh, I think I, I liked it better when it came out on Blu-ray or DVD as its own film and it was expanded to, to be fleshed out a little bit more. So I loved uh, all of the uh, 
the dialogue was great. And like I said, it was the last one that was taking place in modern times, but I loved the Kurt Russell character. And other than Kurt Russell, it's almost all female characters. The entire cast mm -hmm. is all females. And it's funny, like Tarantino really loves his actresses, you know, and I think early on he was, you know, like Reservoir Dogs was so male dominated, but through the years, look at how much he loves Uma Thurman. He loves Pam Greer, he, you know, so he really gives his female leads a lot of space. And, and I think that truth was great, but uh, that's my number nine. You know, real quick, what I found interesting, and, and maybe you can confirm this for me is I, I watched it for the first time on a Blu-ray and that first half is kind of leading up to the lap dance. And then what's going to happen after that. But I read that they, they cut the lap dance in the theater, like it just goes scene missing or something. Was that missing when you saw it? Very possibly, because in the theater, during the, during the Grindhouse thing, there was constantly cuts. Like, they'll be in the middle of a scene, and then it just goes to another scene as if something, a reel was missing or something. So it's very possible. Because that was a cool scene with a great song, too. Yeah, one of the biggest problems with Grindhouse, because I saw the theater, too, and I loved it, but I don't think it did very well because it was way too long. Because uh, the two movies were 80 minutes each. So I think the one I just looked up is 113. So they added an extra, you know, what is that? Extra 35 minutes to the actual death proof to flesh it out. And I think it feels more like a complete it film does. at that length. At the long I, I agree. I agree with you on that. And I, I got a few questions for when I uh, announce uh, death proof as well. But um, so that was your. Okay. So, so we're at number eight right now. Correct. Everyone's at eight. Okay. Uh, I'll go with Jackie Brown for my number eight. We kind of discussed some of the reasons uh, why I didn't like it as much then because it didn't have as much of the crazy violence. As a matter of fact, I don't think anybody even dies on screen. Like, I know uh, Chris Tucker gets killed in the in the trunk of the car and yeah. you never see it. Spoiler alert, De, De Niro killing uh, Bridget I, I was going to bring that up. She okay. is, I don't know whatever happened to Bridget Fonda, but there was a period of time from about 92 to 98, 99, where she was like the hottest for me, like the hottest thing ever and she is especially in this, this she's in this she's incredible. playing the total surfer stoner chick who just wants to have sex or whatever and de niro gets get so angry with her talking he just shoots her and it's just like once again it's like geez tarantino had some girl issues at that point in time but yeah. but but like i said i mean it, it really does hold up better now and i really love um you know, and, and Quentin, and we should probably touch on this. Quentin is so great at picking big stars from the past and giving them an extra, uh, you know, an extra life in the cinema with Robert Forrester and Pam Greer. But oh, yeah. I knew Pam Greer just from the black exploitation movies of the 70s. I didn't really know who Robert Forrester was. And I thought he was so good in this. And at the very end, when 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 Jackie Brown asks him to come with her, to where yep. she's going to the Caribbean or whatever it is. I was like, just go, go, go. And he doesn't go. And you're like, that was your last chance at love. Come on. Yep. Uh, you know, and he pulled it all in his eyes, like completely. Excellent. So excellent. Good. Yeah. Master performance. Absolutely. By him. Absolutely. You know, and yeah. I don't really know if, I don't know if anybody's ever been nominated for Academy award from a Tarantino movie, but he could have definitely been. Oh, sure. There, a lot. I think, uh, Christoph, uh, won for, uh, Bastards, I think he won the Oscar, yeah. Was DiCaprio nominated for uh, for Django? Maybe. I would think so. I would think so. I mean, I 
the Oscars definitely give Tarantino's work a, a You're lot. You're right. He, seven nominations uh, for Pulp Fiction yeah. Academy, one for Jackie. I wonder what that one for Jackie was. I bet you it might have been a Robert Forrest. I should probably look into that. Yeah, maybe more. But but yeah, so so definitely just a very almost. I don't know if you could use the word sweet. But it was a sweet movie uh, when you're talking, you know, um, about a Tarantino movie for sure. And always the inside the trunk shot, too. Every film has that. And, That's uh, a good point. Sure enough, yeah. yeah. Every, I think every film has the inside the trunk shot and a red apple cigarette reference. I think those are the two things you could always count on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's really, really great. I, actually, I'm, I'm kind of looking through. You're right. At least the ones I've seen so far have the trunk shots in them. What's your number, uh, number eight, Mike? Here's, I have Hateful Eight at number eight. Okay. And I recently watched the Netflix version. Talking about length, I don't know if you know, but Netflix put out a, a version of it that's like four 50-minute episodes. Yeah. So it's, you know, yeah. so I recently watched that. And that was, I've seen this film in three different versions. Uh, I was just saying off air before we started. I saw it opening night, the normal version. And then he came out with a roadshow version where they showed the 70-millimeter version and they added some extra scenes and they put an overture at the beginning. They had an intermission. They gave you like a, a, a program as if it were, you were going to a movie <laughs> back in the 50s. So I saw that version and now the Netflix version, that's the, the four-part uh, version. And um, I think it gets better every time. And I think it's actually one of his best shot films in terms of uh, the outdoor shots are so cinematic. That 70 millimeter, total, total widescreen, you know, all those shots in the snow are absolutely some of the most beautiful shots he's ever done. And it's weird because it's such a dichotomy that that movie, it's, it's either massive outdoor cinematic uh, scenery shots or complete close-ups, claustrophobic, stuck inside a cabin. Yeah. So it's one or the other throughout the whole film. And uh, I, I, I ended up life loving it more and more each, each time I've watched it. I think it's one of those underappreciated ones. And uh, I love, you know, I love that he, he keeps doing these these uh, time capsules, these kind of period, period pieces. pieces. Yeah. You know, you have, you have Django, you know, in the 1800s. You had this, I guess this was the late 1800s, early 1900s. You have, uh, you know, Bastards in the 40s. You had Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the 60s. So I like that he's, you're getting the Tarantino version of all these different eras of time and history. You know, uh, uh, just as, as a segue, because people will be yelling at me, uh, Robert Forrester actually did get nominated for uh, Best Supporting Actor by the Academy Awards for that movie. So, and another thing too about 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 the uh, Hateful Eight is I was just reading earlier. Obviously, when it's applicable, we'll talk about the music. But this was the music he actually had, and and how do you pronounce it, Morricone? And it's you know Morricone actually did the music for this, uh, which was his first American movie in years. And Tarantino shot this in seventy millimeter, which, like you said, Mike, it's very strange choice because most of the scenes take place in the cabin. So it's this big expanse of 70 millimeter in a, you know, eight by 10 room, which also makes it seem. It's but very for the, out, the, the opening sequence, and I only know it because uh, the Netflix version shows the opening sequence four times. all four episodes. <laughs> yeah. And it goes for about five minutes. It's about a five minute shot. That's incredible. But I mean, that is like so cinematic and the way it pulls back and it's just one long, long, wide, wide, wide shot. Just absolutely beautiful. Did they add uh, scenes to the Netflix movie or they just cut the movie up? No, they added stuff. I think it's super long. Like, yeah, like Mike said, yeah, it's four episodes. It's a miniseries. Uh, 50 yeah. minutes or more each. Yeah, it's yeah. Mm -hmm. But that, uh, that was my number eight, too. So we covered Hateful Eight a little bit. I guess 
like I said, I like Zoe Bell in it a lot. And it, I thought Sam, ja- we talked about how it was all, you know, bad guys. I thought Sam Jackson was going to wind up being, but he wound up being like a sadist, you know, it's marching terrible. the guy through the snow. Even, and, uh, and also burning down uh, Confederate soldiers and, uh, and Northern soldiers. So, I mean, in the, in the, in the most infamous uh, act that had him want it, but yeah, so there was no redeeming characters on there whatsoever. <laughs> Maybe the that whole speech about how he, uh, Sodomized the guy's son and murders. Oh like, my that's god! Terrible. And, and it was, and it wasn't just told. The fact that they showed it, yeah. like yeah. that, was probably the most gr- sexually graphic thing I've ever seen Tarantino do. That was literally had the, the, this guy giving him a blowjob, like right there, and he's grabbing yeah. his head and putting it in his. I, I was sh- shocking, and that's when I saw the roadshow version that was cut into two parts with an intermission. I'm pretty sure that's how the first half ended with that sequence, <laughs> and then it cut, went to the intermission. Everybody was like. What the f- <laughs> was that? That's great. You know, it's interesting. And we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to Hollywood. But Tarantino really had no boundaries whatsoever. Like, he was not scared. Like we mentioned, you know, not that this is a good thing, but beat up a woman or sodomize somebody's son or say the N-word or, you know, all of these things that you see him do, bashing someone's head with a baseball bat, etc., he never really had any inhibitions about going that extra mile and it was kind of expected. And I wonder in this day and age, if he could get away with some of those things they did in the past. And the answer is probably no. Well, if you look at Hollywood, it was not graphic right. or, a, at all, except for, until the very, very end. So really, I mean, if you look at his last few films, you know, that have been made in the me too movement. Yeah. I wonder like, you know, his next one that he's saying is going to be his last one. You know, what, what is going to be the, the subject matter he's going to tackle? And is he going to go balls out or yeah. is he going to be censored? Is he going to be, I think you will. know, canceled? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. We're up to number seven. And Jojo, you can tell us what you've got. But before you do, got to thank one of the best tasting sponsors that Talk is Jericho has ever had. Talking about Magic Spoon cereal. Uh, starting my day with Magic Spoon's protein packed delicious cereal gives me the energy I need to get everything done. Two for two. Uh, actually, I'm three for three so far in the five labors of Jericho. Uh, I beat Juventud Guerrera. Next week, I got Wardlow in the fourth uh, spot. And then I owe all my victories to Magic Spoon, of course. Now, Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. It's just 140 calories per serving as well. And check this out. Keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and you can build your own custom box or get a variety pack with available flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, and cinnamon. All of them taste amazing. Even better news, Magic Spoon is bringing back two of their most popular flavors permanently, cookies and cream and maple walnut. They are permanently back. And the cookies and cream are now my new favorites. I love them. Maple walnut is good, too. It tastes like uh, like a, a waffle. Uh, just great stuff. I want you to go to magicspoon.com slash Jericho to grab your delicious cereal and try it today. And be sure to use my promo code Jericho at checkout to save 5 bucks off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So it, uh, if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash Jericho and use the code Jericho to save $5. You'll get $5 off if you use that code Jericho. Thank you to Magic Spoon for supporting Talk is Jericho and being the breakfast of Le Champion. Do I frighten you? Is it my scar? It's your car. Okay, so number seven, uh, Joe, why don't you go number seven? Number seven, I, I also, uh, Death Proof. 
ranked a little bit lower for me. And uh, but I did want to say that a lot of his movies, you know, we talk you talked music a little bit a minute ago, you know, have such great songs. Either you know them, you're like, wow, he's used that, or you don't know it and you discover it. And Death Proof had a lot of great songs like that for me. And I found out reading about it that in that bar scene where he where Quinn plays the bartender. That's his jukebox, like his special jukebox from his house that he has in the in his room where he has people over or whatever. So he uh, has got a very eclectic musical selection in there, apparently. But I thought it was great. And Kurt, as stuntman Mike, going from like hardcore killer to at the end, like begging for his life and everything. I thought that was phenomenal. Yeah, man. Say it, Chris. I, Say it. Haven't you been to his well, house? Well, is that I was where gonna, you're going? I, actually, I don't know how you even guessed my mind. I was going to talk about stuntman Mike, but I'll talk about him later. I was going to say I, I actually have met Tarantino before. And it wasn't at his house, but it was at Eli Roth's house. After oh, okay. I went to the screening for Inglorious Bastards in Hollywood at the uh, Arclight and went back to Eli's place. And Eli has a screening room. And during this party, which was, you know, all the Hollywood guys and all this stuff, they, I don't know, for some reason, go to the screening room to watch A Fistful of Dollars, I believe it was. It was one of the, the Leone Spaghetti Westerns with, with Eastwood. And as we were watching, it's like, this is pretty f- cool. Like, Eli's my buddy. I've known him for years before he was even a big-time director. But it's with, we're with Tarantino, you know, and they're friends. And Eli was just one of the main characters and bastards and et cetera, et cetera. And so we're sitting there. And right as we're starting to watch this movie, Tarantino starts pointing stuff out. And he's talking as loud as – and it's just the three of us. And he's, you know, the, the, yeah. so wow. he's talking about the flies – that were on a dead body in 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 the movie. And he's like, you know, these are South African flies that they flew in because they're bigger and they move slower, so they're easier to see on camera. And the reason why they use them, and they, so he's talking, it's like, is this semi-interesting stuff? All right. And he says, all right. After, all right. After, uh, yeah. after okay. And um, all right. And so they use this for the flies, okay? And they got, <laughs> and so it's kind of cool at first. And then like 10 minutes, it's like, won't this guy ever shut up? <laughs> like, he's just not gonna... <laughs> Okay, so this gun right there, it's a 38 uh, special, okay? And they only had it in Italy, okay? Right. And it's like, it's like, what do we oh, that's great. It was a it was a really wow. cool experience, but after a while, I was like, I could never watch a movie with this guy. You know, oh. <laughs> he just had every little bit of he knew everything about movies. And then Eli Roth is right behind him. These guys are talking like I thought I knew about movies. I'll just, I'll just take a back seat and listen to these guys talk about you know grease on the bullets that they uh, you know <laughs> imported from Chile or whatever. How it is. cool is that though? Yes. Yeah. So uh, let's see where are we at. So so uh, I, I Kill Bill One is my number seven. And like I said, I, I really, once again, enjoyed it when I first saw it, but I was really confused. And I wasn't quite getting it at first, especially when it just ended where it did. Going back and watching it now, those fight scenes are just uh, incredible. You know, and you can see so much about kind of like those 70s kung fu movies and and. You know, uh, the crazy 88s, you know, or, and just the, the bloodshed that are just over the top, Monty Python, you know, just spurts of blood everywhere. Uh, I love the five, six, seven, eights, the, the Japanese, the, the, the girl band that were playing. Uh, but it just because it cut off when it did and I didn't quite get the full expansive story of it. I think if this would have come out as four hours and I would have been able to watch this four hours, it might be in my top three or four. But splitting it up, it kind of killed my momentum a bit. But they're both great movies, but one stands out more for me because of the action. But it was confusing because you don't know where they're going until a year later. Mike, what do you got for seven? I got Django at number seven. And it's funny. It actually, it came, I just watched about an hour of it last night. I was just laying up in bed at 3 a.m. channel surfing and it was on. So I, I ended up watching about an hour of it. And um, I mean, 
like first of all, DiCaprio working with Tarantino was it was you know I guess that was the first time. Yeah. It was yeah. so cool, and all the performances are great. That that one scene with the, where uh, the first scene where you see DiCaprio and the two guys are beating the little the crap out of each other to fighting to death and everything and in that in his bar. Oh, it's, I mean that's as brutal. That's as brutal yeah. as it gets. That's another that's totally, another totally brutal. envelope pushing moment for sure. Oh, uh, I mean I was watching it last night. I was like, wow. Yeah. I mean this is like hard to watch, but uh, you know. Once again, the period piece is amazing. So incredibly well done. I love, it's an, essentially a love story. Again, you know, he's, he's, he's on a quest to find his wife and save her and rescue her. And I love Christoph's performance. You know, Samuel L. Jackson is, is, <laughs> is so sick and evil in this. Uh, but uh, what more can I say? I mean, we've kind of talked about it a bit, a bit already. But yeah, that would be my number seven. What would you, Jojo? Uh, I'd like the little period touches like especially when they go into the bar and he's pouring him the beer and he has a little thing to scrape the head off and then he pours a little like he pours him the perfect beer yeah. you know <laughs> i'm waiting for it to grow on me i guess uh because i have it i have the blu-ray i've seen it a few times and i think it's going to be one of those where I, I watch it a few like bastards at first i wasn't that crazy about but we'll get to that but but django i think it's going to grow on me you know actually it's the next thing i plan on watching so i'll give it another go tonight is that your number seven? Oh um, no my seven was um was oh, okay, so, so, okay, so, so we're at six now so my number six is Death Proof. Mike really kind of hit the nail on the head for the most part why I liked it. Um, I liked it expanded. It's once again very envelope pushing because he beats the shit out of those girls at the beginning, the first one. And once again, that's, that's you know, uh, uh, what was her name? Rose McGowan. I mean, you think she's a big star. Uh, murdered just terribly where he's just like stopping the car and starting it. Like Death Proof is the name of his car because he's a stuntman and he has built, you know, this car where you can't get hurt in it if you're a stuntman. But if you're the passenger in the car, you can get hurt. And she does and he stops short and she goes through the windshield and she's dead. Then he drives head on into the girls and like leg flying and it's just terrible. Terrible stuff, right? <laughs> but then there's a sea there's a sea change where we meet four other chicks, Rosario Dawson, Zoe Bell, who was Uma Thurman's stunt double in Kill Bill that Quentin became enthralled with or whatever it was, and put her in the lead, her first real acting role. And you can tell she's not a great actor, but she does a good job. And then suddenly we have yeah. the revenge story where stuntman Mike it's one of the best transformations. Another reason why I love Kurt Russell, where he goes from just this vicious, terrible serial killer to just this cowardly little pussy, just sniveling. Please yeah. don't hurt me. Ow, ow. And, broke my leg. Yeah, and then they just end up, they just, the old sticking the high heel, you know, shoe through his eye, which was amazing. But I do have a question for you guys, and I really want to know what happened to that. Remember, there's that one girl. She's uh, she's in the movie and she is uh, part of the, of the of the crew of with Abernathy, who is uh, Rosario Dawson. She's the up and coming actress, Lee Montgomery. And they walk up to like this mechanic sort of thing and they leave her with the mechanic and walk away. I was convinced that we would go back and find out that this mechanic was some kind of crazy killer. Right. who's going to be, you know pulling a hostel on her and chainsawing her in two or something like they just made it seem okay. But we never saw her again. No, 
Yeah, last we saw her, she was like just passed out in a chair because they had been partying the night before. That was uh, Mary Elizabeth. Yes, that's Winston, her name exactly. Right? Uh, yeah, and I was like, yeah. I always thought they were gonna somehow go back to it where she was being like tortured by this, you know, hill hillbilly yeah, mechanic totally. in Lebanon, Texas. But they never did, and I'm sure he was thinking it too. But maybe he just didn't want to go that far. And, and there's a, there's a there's a scene in a movie later on that we'll discuss. It's kind of the same idea. But I, I always wondered whatever happened to. Poor Lee. And did they ever go back and get her after they killed Stuntman Mike? And they wrecked that guy's car, too, because remember, they were taking That's it out right. for a test drive. And- yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So he would be really pissed, you know? So uh, what do you got for number six, Mike? Inglorious Bastards. And um, I really, really love this one. I mean, there's uh, I, I love how he, he tackles these horrific subjects you know he tackled slavery the horrors of slavery tackles the horrors of you know charles manson murders and and here he tackles the horrors of of nazi germany and of course you know how it ends you know he he puts his (laughs) twist on history which is you know he's done that a couple times now but um i love this movie i loved uh there's so many intense uh sequences uh, you know, obviously the whole opening bit, which goes on for maybe 20 minutes or so, and the dialogue and the the glass of milk, and you know that the people are underneath and everything like that. It's so intense. And then later on, uh, the scene in the bar when they're playing the game with the – I mean, it's just Incredible. It's so intense. And you, and here you are living in this world of Nazi Germany. You have no idea what's going to ever happen. And, uh, and still at the heart of it, he finds a bit of a love story, like with the – the girl, I forgot her daughter. name. But, uh, the theater. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I just loved, and I love Brad Pitt's performance. I mean, seeing Brad Pitt finally do a Tarantino film, Eli Roth's performance as a, uh, what is the it? Bear the, Jew. the Bear Jew. The Bear Jew. Or the yeah. Jew bear, whatever. <laughs> oh, I mean, I was, he was Negan yeah, before, right. before right. there was a Negan. He was, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I love this. I, I, the dialogue was great. I mean, the, the violence was great. Uh, you want to see those Nazis burn. You know, you see the, the flamethrower, like the 14... Uh, a 14 the 14 fists of McCluskey. Yeah, exactly. You know, that, <laughs> no. and, and them all being in the movie theater. I mean, just everything about Bastards, I loved. The ending, the very last shot, you know, it was just... It was great. So I, I loved it. That would be uh, my number six. Technically, it would be my top five if I, if I counted Kill Bill as one. It's interesting, too. That was the first time when uh, Tarantino kind of rewrote history. Right. And I thought that was such like, like it was because some people were kind of angry about it, but I thought it was pretty cool. It's a movie. Why does he have to stick to what really happened? It's his universe. So, you know, red apple cigarettes and big kahuna burger and Hitler was killed by the bear Jew. I mean, and that's one of the best is that Eli Roth got to tell his parents, I killed Hitler. Hitler. Well, even, I mean, I'm going to mention it now, even though it's about Hollywood, um, I'll mention it now just so I don't, in case I forget it. I just read his, his novel, the once upon a time in Hollywood novel. And just to get this point out about changing history, there's a lot of stuff in the book that isn't in the film. And once again, he's rewriting history. And in, in the book, he talks about how one of the character goes on to be in a Quentin Tarantino <laughs> film. Like, so he's like literally writing himself into his book, into this alternate universe where like uh, Rick Dalton yeah. or whoever it was gets to be in a Quentin Tarantino film, like in the eighties, <laughs> you know? So that's, a, he takes it to whole new levels of like this alternate world. Yeah. Well, once again, goes into Kevin Smith territory with the view skew universe where the last Jane silent Bob reboot, Kevin Smith is fighting Kevin Silent Bob is fighting Kevin Smith, right. <laughs> which is cool. 
Um, what's your number six, Joe? Kill Bill 2. And like I said, the, the reason I, I ranked it above the first was because I liked the more in-depth character studies that it had, you know, the dialogue. Michael Madsen's character is a strip club bouncer with the shaker yeah. hat that uh, the guy always yeah. gets in trouble for. And I thought he was great. And then sh- they actually, in the second one, is when they show the wedding yeah. massacre. That's they didn't right. show it. But you get the right. idea. And uh, David Carradine's uh, speech to her before that and all his monologues. I mean, just great stuff. So I, I prefer two to one. Yeah, I love as well. Like there's some great stuff in there. Like when Daryl Hannah, uh, she had her eye plucked out by Homain or whatever his name was. So then the bride plucks out her eye, which I just love because she's got yep. a patch on one eye and no eye in the other. So she's blind, which, of course, then the black mamba snake gets her and kills her or whatever. And then also, too, we have to discuss briefly the five-point finger death, whatever it was. Exploding heart. Exploding heart, where you get five steps before you die. You can sit there for an hour if you want, but when you get up and walk, and she gives it to to Bill, and he still talks for a bit, and then he gets up and takes his five steps, and his heart explodes. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing stuff. Yeah. Another cool thing about Tarantino is how you know, like he wears his influences on his sleeve, but it also helps people discover. You know, like I, I'm gonna go watch a bunch of spaghetti oh, westerns. Sure. I'm gonna watch Leone and things like that. You know, because I want to see how he was influenced. I, I watched a couple of uh, John Wayne's yesterday just to watch old westerns. Right. You know, and that kind of came from watching, you know, Tarantino's, uh, you know, western flicks. So yeah, even that scene uh, from in Kill Bill One with uh, with Daryl Hannah in the in yeah. the hospital. And uh, it's that's like straight out of Brian De Palma. That could right. be like Dressed to Kill or, or Blowout. And even the music, I think the music might have been Bernard Herrmann, uh, like literally lifted from a De Palma film. And he did it with the split screens and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I, I love that. I love that. Uh, he, he's so open about his influences. Yeah, so open about his influences and so open. And I'll, I'll take number five, which is, which is Django Unchained for me. I love the fact that he... Has it's almost that old school Hollywood and Tarantino is old school Hollywood, you know, in a fifty-two-year-old man's body or whatever he is. He uses his cast, his stable of actors, to where he brings them back from time to time. You might not see him in every one, but Django, obviously, with Samuel Jackson, with Chris Waltz, Walton Scoggins, who ends up in Hateful Eight, is tremendous in it. I love the fact that he found it. We'll we'll discuss when when we get to Bastards, at least on my end. Christoph Waltz is, is it's a tie up between Samuel and Christoph as to which one of these guys savors Tarantino's dialogue more. Dialogue, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, they both they both deliver it's it. So like, great. Every That's right. word is and and, yeah. and this one obviously they're both in it and they're both their characters are just so great because every line, it's just so well done. Uh, you know, obviously, Christoph is the bad guy in Bastards, and he's the good guy, uh, the good guy dentist in this one. And it's just everything that he says, you believe it, it's real, it works. Uh, I felt I felt Jamie Foxx played it more kind of uh, like a 50s Western cowboy would, where the other two guys were playing it straight. And DiCaprio, too. He's so f- great in this. And he's he, Calvin Candy, uh, like you said, just so lascivious. Just the, the, I've used him as an example to write wrestling storylines as a matter of fact because he's such a piece of shit another great scene is don johnson handing oh, out the Ku Klux yeah. clan masks which is one of my favorite comedy <laughs> moments in a tarantino yeah. one guy's eyes are off and they're like, come on you're insulting my wife she made it but 
And then, of course, Samuel just playing the just despicable. He's the house uh, worst word used on, on his end. But just how he betrays his own people to become, you know, a, a surrogate white man, so to speak, which is also very historical. It's just, it's just really well done all across the board uh, with a great ending. And obviously, you know, the little horse trick at the end when he rides away with Broomhilda, yeah. his wife, Broomhilda, what a name that yeah. is. This this is one that I can watch over and over again. And also, this is the one that had just happened to be on that I watched with my son a couple of years ago that led us to start going down the Tarantino rabbit hole um, where we got through about six of them. And then he got a little few years older and didn't want to watch movies with me anymore for a while. So <laughs> I'm sure you've been through that, Mike. I'll get him back soon. But yeah, uh, so interesting casting notes for that. Just real quick is that Will Smith was originally considered for for Django and actually wow. turned it down because he said it wasn't the lead role interesting maybe you see. thought candy was maybe or and then the other thing is there was going to be a character named uh ace woody who's going to be uh calvin candy's right hand man kind of walter goggins kind of took that role on of a, a different character name but it was going to be either first it was kevin costner cast and then kurt russell but both had to drop out so think about how the movie would have changed with a bad guy kevin costner <laughs> at DiCaprio's side or whatever you know like that would have been great you know once again those are the type of guys that that tarantino would love working with he'd probably love to work with kevin costner you know, at some point, if you could, what do you got for number five, Joe? Number five, Jackie mm-hmm. Brown, and uh, it's ranked a little higher than than you guys, but I, uh, I I appreciated the love story aspect of it. Robert Barster was amazing. De Niro was amazing, of course, and uh, the opening scene where she's coming down out of the plane or, or on her way to the to the flight uh, to across 110th Street was just. I thought that was so yeah. awesome. Like that was a great opening for the movie. And, um, and that shot, that shot, I'm sorry to cut you off, but that shot was almost recreated in Hollywood. Uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, there's a shot of yeah. uh, Brad Pitt going oh, in, right, in the, in the right, airport right, with the right. luggage. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the Rolling Stones, uh, out of out yeah, of time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but the other thing about Jackie Brown's, we talked about how Hateful Eight was all was all bad guys, and Jackie Brown, I thought it was. Like Sam Jackson, you're supposed to root for him to get it at the end, and I'm like, he didn't really do too many bad things. Yeah, like he was just trying to keep get his money and get out, you know. So if he had to kill Chris Tucker or whatever, and then maybe he had to kill Jackie because he didn't know. I got it. He wasn't like uh, sadistic, you know. I guess that's the way I would look at it. But I, you know. I didn't. I didn't like that Kangol hat that he wore. Remember? <laughs> that was the big thing yeah. in '97. Oh yeah, he had, he had the he had the Neil Peart subdivisions rat tail as well. <laughs> yeah. As he's putting Chris Tucker in the trunk and he goes, yeah, ponytail wearing mother. You know? <laughs> but yes, yeah, so Jackie's at five. What do you got, Mike? Well, I'm going to cheat. Uh, I know you said to separate the two kill bills, but I can't. I'm like Quentin. All I right. can't. They, to me, it's one film. So my four and five are kill bill one and two. Um, I just can't separate them. And, and, because, I, because, like you guys have already said, you know, if you just take one on its own, that's all the action. That's the violence. Those are the the uh, the orchestrated, you know, uh, the fight sequences. And then the second half is more, uh, you know, talking. I found the second half a little slower. Right. I could have done without all the training with the with the the white haired uh, guy uh, with the long mm-hmm. mustache, and you know, in Japan, I could have done without that. And then the, I like the the, the the buried alive sequence yeah. is cool. I, I I kind of always like that. I don't know. I, I loved taking them together as one film. I love that the way Tarantino breaks his films up into chapters, and he, mm-hmm. he does that a great lot. Great call, great call. And I love the way that like Kill Bill is the chapters are like all out of order, so you're learning all these different things at different times, and that's right out of the Pulp Fiction book. Yeah. 
But I love the fact that he like makes these nonlinear films and like it starts with, you know, the bride dead or whatever, but you don't even see that. So you don't even see what happens until the next film. And I love how each one of these chapters is like, you know, another one of the, you know, the, the revenge that they're, that she's seeking out. I also was at the, at that time watching a lot of Japanese, so like Takashi. Mike. Yeah. Mike, however you say his name. I was really into his films at the time. So this came at a perfect time. I was into like Audition and uh, Itchy the Killer. So this was like right in sync with that, with the Japanese scenes and the, the whole thing where, you know, with everybody getting killed at the, at the, the Japanese restaurant or whatever. Restaurant or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I really loved this. It was classic Tarantino. I love the music. Uh, I love all the callbacks to, to other things like mentioning the, the De Palma kind of feel and, and, Carradine was incredible. The dialogue and stuff in the, towards the end of the second half, I mean, that was just incredible. You know, that, that was the tender Tarantino on display. So I, I put these two together, and hopefully one of these days we'll get it, the whole bloody affair that they've been talking about. But until then, and I actually have, um, I think maybe it eventually came out in the box set. I have this box set. But at one point I bought um, the original Japanese version of part of volume one, had uh, the whole black and white sequence that it was all, I think the whole fight sequence was in black and oh, white wow. or was it in color? Maybe I'm getting them mixed up, but the version in Japan uh, had that whole sequence in color or in black and white, whichever the opposite of what the American version was. So this was an interesting thing to check out too. The whole sequence. Uh, I think, I think the American version was in black and white. I think maybe because it was so bloody with all the killings, you know, 100 people getting killed or whatever, it was too bloody. So they showed it in black and white in America, but the Japanese version was in color. I'll say this too. I'm a big fan of uh, the movie title telling me what the movie is about. Like, like for example, I always pause with The Prestige. Love the movie, hated the name because I don't know what that means. What is The Prestige? I don't know. Kill Bill. That's the perfect yeah. name for a movie. What's it about? She got to kill Bill. That's yeah, it. In yeah. two words, I know what the entire movie is about, and I like that. I think this that's a great title. Very smart. And like second or third question is, all right, who's Bill? Who plays Bill? Yeah, well, then you get into who's who has to kill Bill, right? But at least you know yeah. there's this Bill that needs to be killed. So there you go. All right, so that was Mike's uh, five Four, four, or five, five. four or five. Four or five. All right. What do you got for number four, Joe? Reservoir Dogs. Four. I'll be the first one to to mention it. Um, to broach the subject. Yeah. I mean, we talked about you know how do we get into Tarantino and stuff. It was the second film I saw. I remember buying it on VHS and watching it with friends. And we were you know you're you're enthralled. You're all wondering, well, who is the rat? Oh, it, well, it can't be him, or it can't be him. You know, or and. Uh, you know, the, the the chase scenes when they're running away from the robbery, Buscemi's part, of course, is very, very exciting. Kaitel and Buscemi together going back and forth is great. Madsen is Mr. Blonde. I mean, uh, so that kind of, you know, kids to die for his career. They want most, you know, they want Madsen to be like a sly, kind of cool, you know, evil bad guy in most movies. Right. And uh, it's... It's a classic. It really is. I, I uh, you know, you put it at a four and you kind of feel bad, but I, I love that movie. I, I just I watched it again last week. It's phenomenal. It's interesting too because once again, Mike mentioned about how he has his chapters and things are all out of sequence, and that's the first one. And, and that's another thing I love about Tarantino movies. You have to pay attention. This is not the type of movie like nowadays. You know, you watch a movie with your kids are around on their phones or whatever. We have a tendency to do it too. You got to put your phone down for these movies, man, because if you're not paying attention, you miss something in you know minute four 
that's going to pay off in minute 94. And if you don't remember it, you're going to get screwed on it, you know? And just that, that groan of anguish when Chris Penn finds out that, uh, Freddie, Mr. Orange is, is the rat. I will never forget that. It's so well done. And Chris Penn obviously is no longer with us, but his performance in that movie, I mean, in a movie with everybody whose performance is great, he said, don't you, don't you point that thing at my dad? It's like, he's so good. <laughs> and then just that groan of like, no, no, you know, I, I just thought that, you know, and I'll, I'll get it to get to it when I talk about it, but just so well done all across the board. And for a guy's first movie, I mean, that's pretty, pretty good. Very, very impressive. Yeah. Uh, my number four, I think I'm the first to mention is, is once upon a time in Hollywood. Uh, and over time it has potential to move up. This is a movie that I knew I was going to love right from the start because I love DiCaprio and I love Brad Pitt and, you know, the whole Manson thing. We didn't know. We just heard he's doing a movie about Charles Manson, the Manson family. But then you see the poster and it's Brad Pitt and and DiCaprio. So neither of these guys are playing Charles Manson. What is this about? Uh, Also, too, Brad Pitt, smoking hot As, as a heterosexual dude, I can say that. He is so like I was trying to get my wife to watch. I'm like, listen, this is the hottest Brad Pitt. You thought he was hot in Thelma <laughs> Louise. He's way hotter now. He's so cool in playing this part. So well done. Now, this is a movie, though, that it really is a sequence of vignettes that leads to basically what happens. But you could watch one of these parts and it has nothing to do with anything else. When you watch it closely, it has everything to do with it. But a lot of people are like, it's too long and it doesn't make sense. It does make sense, but you have to pay attention because all of the segments do fit together in a long way. You know what I mean? Do you guys agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about it more when, when it gets into my list. But I mean, so, so a couple more things from my point of view. I love his universe that he creates about Rick Dalton. Uh, I love when he makes his fake movies, you know, all those sort of things and and all the different, you know, roles that Dalton had. And, but I will say this though, and you, and you guys can delve into it more when you talk about it. I really do feel that this is the end of an era in Hollywood because they talk about how Manson was the end of the innocence for basically America for the summer of love, if nothing else, almost was the end of an era for American cinema. And I think it's the end of an era for Tarantino as well. Because like we talked about earlier, his style of movie doesn't play well in 2021. Not to guys like us, but to people that are just looking for a fight, there's a million things you can bag on Tarantino for. And I think I think yeah. that bothers him because I think it's an end of an era for him as well, which is maybe one of the reasons why he wants to do an even 10 movies and be done with it. I don't know. Hopefully he does more. He's only in his 50s. I mean, hopefully he can do more, but... If this is kind of the winding down and end of the innocence, to paraphrase Don Henley, uh, I can see why. But this movie definitely mirrors that for me, and I can kind of tell um, that vibe of it. That's the Rick Dalton story. Rick Dalton, this his entire being in this film is him being depressed that he's no longer a vital right. actor. You know, suddenly now he's being shipped to Italy to do horrible, you know, be spaghetti westerns, and that's all that's left for him. And he's depressed. He's He's drinking himself, uh, you know, drinking eight whiskey sours a night in his pool and passing hour, <laughs> passing out. And so that's what I think Tarantino doesn't want to become. Right. Good point. He wants to he wants to get out 
you know, before he's a has-been and he's on the back end of his career. Because that's the whole Rick, Rick Dalton story of Peter. Yeah. And, and, the, and the great, the great happy ending of this is because of the ending <laughs> that we have. We went, you, you spend this whole movie thinking, oh, yeah. shit, like yeah. it was Rick Dalton and, and uh, uh, what's Brad Pitt's character's are Rick, are Rick and Cliff, are, are they going to get killed by the Manson yeah. like, family? Or like you spend the whole movie thinking that they're doomed or that potentially doomed. But then the, 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 the happy ending of this is that Rick Dalton survives. And spoiler alert, I assume anybody that's listening to this <laughs> yeah. has seen the film. But here's your here's your your warning. The happy ending is not only does Sharon Tate live, but suddenly Rick Dalton is now introduced to Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate at the end of the film and invited into (laughs) their house. And then if you read the book, because I just finished reading the novel, Rick Dalton has this whole new career as a result of like surviving and meeting Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski and then moving into the 70s and 80s and has this whole like revived career, almost like. Like you were saying earlier, that what Tarantino has done to for John Travolta or or right. Pam Greer, you know, and so he actually had a chance to revive uh, Rick Dalton's <laughs> career at the end of this film as well. And one like a funny thing about that in the novel too is uh, that you know think about what would have happened if that was true, and and Cliff really did kill those dirty hippies, and and uh, Rick Dalton used a flamethrower. It wouldn't be Rick Dalton and Cliff killed the Manson family. That's it would right. be Dalton and Booth killed random B&E, you know, hippies that were trying to, they were all high on drugs That's or whatever. That's a great point. And so, in the novel, it's it's minimized, because it's like, hey, remember that time back in seven, the 70s, when you, or the end of the 60s, when you killed those hippies? And they never, right, you know right, what right. I mean? Right. So, the thing about the novel, and here's a spoiler alert as well, and so you so you read it? Yeah, I love that, by the way. Yeah, it was great. I loved it as well, but the ending of the novel the way you watch the whole movie, uh, anticipating what you think the ending is going to be, and it ends up not being, it was the same with the book. Like, we didn't get, like, I, I was, like, at the last five pages of the book, and I'm like, wait a second, when is what I'm thinking going to happen going to happen? And it doesn't huh. happen. So Tarantino even plays with you as a reader, <laughs> as, as a, author, a reader yeah. of the book as well. We'll, we'll, we'll leave yeah. some to discuss when you guys uh, uh, get to that, too. But the two things I want to point out that, that one of my favorite Tarantino moments ever is when Cliff just whips that can of food at the one hippie's head and just wags, just like, ow! Yeah. Like, it just, we can all feel like, oh, that would hurt so hard off can of soup or beans or whatever. And the other thing I was going to mention, like we said, we don't, we never knew what was going to happen uh, to to uh, Lee Montgomery in Death Proof. And I always wondered, what happened on the boat? Did Cliff kill his wife? It's in the book that you okay, find out. Have to reach. I have it on my I have it on my dresser right now. But the thing yeah, about yeah. it, and you guys will appreciate this because you both have glasses. The f- print is so small. I got to wear it with my glasses, and I haven't had a chance yet. Uh, it's yeah. like, I can't read this anymore with my real eyes. It's too small. Because it came out, it's just a it's small. A, it's a small paperback. Paper exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, so uh, that was my number four. Mike said his number four. Joe, have you said your number four yet? Yeah, it was Jackie Brown. So we're on three. Yeah. Okay. So Mike, give us your number three. Uh, Reservoir Dogs. Uh, where it all began and uh, you know we've talked a lot about it but you know the impact the first time I saw it uh, it just blew my mind I had never I haven't hadn't seen anything like that the dialogue and talk about you know people you were talking about like Samuel Jackson like reading Tarantino dialogue everybody in Reservoir Dogs from from Tim Roth to Harvey Keitel to Steve Buscemi Buscemi especially yeah but uh I mean all the dialogue uh Matson 
was incredible. And, and nobody was writing like that. And and you also compare it to uh, Kevin Smith, and I agree with that. They were the two guys that were writing dialogue that was talking about pop culture and things like that. I love the Houston music yes. and the K Billy Super Sound of the 70s on the soundtrack going through awesome. the whole movie. It was so amazing. Little Green Bag was my uh, house music intro tape for the Dream Theater tour that year. <laughs> and of course, the, the uh, Stuck in the Middle with You scene, it was so, at that time, like so brutal and violent, and you don't even really see it. And he actually stole that entire sequence directly off of Brian De Palma. Hmm. If you think about the chainsaw sequence from from Scarface, oh, wow. Brian De Palma Scarface, you're in there, you're in right. the bathroom with them with the chainsaw, and they're they're handcuffed, and you're dreading what you're about to see. The camera pulls out of the bathroom window, out across the street, and you see his uh, Pacino's friend in the car flirting with the girls, <laughs> and in the and you no longer hear the music, you no longer hear the screaming, you don't hear the chainsaw anymore, and you're just picturing in your head what's going. And then all of a sudden, the camera goes back, and then you're back in the bathroom with the chainsaw, and then you see the the end result. So that's pretty much what Tarantino exactly did with the ear cutting scene in Reservoir Dogs, because while he's getting while he's getting tortured, the camera walks it with him out. To the car, you hear stuck in the middle with you right. in, the, in the distance, yeah. and he gets the ca- the can of gasoline from the car. He walks back in, only to co- you know cover him with gasoline. He's about to set him on fire, but it was directly ripped off of De Palma from Scarface. But it was brilliant. Dang. Like I, you know, I was a big De Palma fan yeah. at that point when Reservoir Do- when I saw Reservoir Dogs. I was like, this is freaking brilliant. This is brilliant filmmaking. This is groundbreaking. This guy is a genius and the way the chapters you know uh mr white mr brown you get the backstories the way that the story is told out of sequence it opens with uh tim roth bleeding like a pig in the back of the car and you're like what the happened and it was just everything about it was so groundbreaking and you know put him on the map and you know here we are you know nine ten films later but uh, you know i can't say enough about reservoir dogs the impact it had on me as a, a, a film lover you know, just rocked my world so bad. I couldn't wait for Pulp Fiction. And that's still to come in this conversation. And but, I'll, uh, I'll pick up right where you left off because I'm at number three, Reservoir Dogs as well. A couple things about that. I, When I left WWE in 2005, I went to uh, LA to study acting. I didn't go to, to, to be a movie star. I wanted to learn the art of acting. And I actually studied with Kirk Baltz, who plays Marvin Nash, the cop who gets yes, his, right. his ear chopped off. And this guy, man, he he was deep. Here's who he hung out with back in the day, and he's the only one that escaped out of it. It was him, Chris Penn, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. They were the three up-and-comers, and and obviously we know what happened to the other two. And and Kirk, kind of his career went askew because he was they were total heroin addicts, which is where their genius came from. And, you know, he was a great actor, and you watch that performance – when he gets the ear chopped, but it's when he gets the, the the gas poured on him. He's like, no, 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 no. That's what my son, we watched that. And he's like, if he lights this guy on fire, I'm never watching another movie with you again. I'm like, he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't light on fire. Please stick with it. Um, so there's that part of it. So I always had a personal connection to it. Obviously, that was 13 years after I saw the movie. But I always loved it. I mentioned earlier the fact that the mole was the guy who was shot in the stomach that Harvey Keitel was going out of his way to try and save and try and 
he actually might have been the guy that was moaning as well when, when, when Mr. White finds out that he's the mole. But it was just I just love the fact that all these guys set out to, to for this caper, as uh, as the old guy says, and then they all end up dead and nobody gets anything, and that's just the way it goes. Not a single survivor. Did anybody? Use- I yeah, mean, it's, it's yeah, the classic yeah. Tarantino Mexican standoff. I point it, gun at Mike. Right, Mike totally. points it at Joe. Joe points it at me. And they basically all shoot each other at the same time. And I think that's how the movie ends, doesn't it? It's just like boom, 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 mm-hmm. boom. And then it goes to Coconut. Yeah, Harry Nielsen's Coconut. Coconut. If you listen at the end, and people have done oh, this yeah. online or whatever, and as Cartel's about to shoot Tim, uh, Kaitel's about to shoot Tim Roth, and the cops are saying, you know, drop it, drop it. You can hear out on the street the cops going, stop running, you know, drop the bag, bam, bam, bam. So you know, if you listen, that Buscemi got Even killed he too got trying killed to get away. Right, right, yeah, just yeah. excellent movie. And and what's he do? Do we know why it was called Reservoir Dogs? Any knowledge about that at all? No, good point. No. <laughs> I have no yeah, idea. I mean, no, uh, I'm not sure. I'll, I'll do a little bit of research. The only, the only dog in the film, I think, is that flashback scene when uh, Tim Roth is in the bathroom peeing and there's a bunch of cops that walk in <laughs> and there's a shot of a dog like in slow motion, like li- yeah, licking his lips right. or something like that. Right. But I don't know what that has to do with anything. Well, you guys, what's your number three, uh, uh, Joe? Uh, Inglorious Bastards. I'm going to put it three and we've discussed a lot of it, but I wanted to put over August Deal huge for being uh, major hellstrom in the basement you know the the uh, gestapo guy he was his facial reactions when he really knows that that's that this guy is not what he says he is when he puts up the three instead of uh how's no germans put it up germans yeah, put it up yeah, like yeah. this yeah so his facial expressions when he's like pissed and then he's like this is it like almost like oh man i'm gonna die but you know and then he comes out after him that that guy was phenomenal. And I like Mike Myers cameo too. That was a fun little moment where <laughs> uh, do you want to bar All right, the bars in the globe, get yourself one, you know? And uh, that was a great, great moment too. But that it, like a kill bill or something like that, it has its chapters and everyone at first you're like, Oh, I like this chapter the best instead of that one. But then when you go back and watch now you appreciate a chapter you didn't before, or you notice something you didn't before. And I just thought that was, that was a great movie. Yeah. That's to me, that's bastards is in his top three. I've really grown to appreciate it. Um, the other thing about Bastards too is, like you said, I mean, the, the, there are a bunch of, of of vignette set pieces. It all does string together, but but you can't, like Mike mentioned way earlier, about the milk scene at the beginning, and of course the the card game scene where that that scene, I guess, if you call it the card game, the tension in that is is better than any other movie and maybe even any other Tarantino scene that I've ever seen. The, the milk one is close, but that one there, you know, it's going to end up bad. You just hope that it doesn't. And, and for people, once again, if you haven't seen it, then don't listen to this podcast for people that forgot. He fooled them all into thinking he was a German uh, soldier until he held up three and he held up the three fingers that all of us would and they found the German style. style is to hold up the other three or the two and the thumb. Thumb and your two fingers. I don't know if that's real or not, but it's freaking genius. And it leads to just a massive <laughs> just a shoot down for everybody. And don't forget the great character, Hugo Stiglitz, yes. who is, uh, he killed all the nut, but what's great is he's at the card game and Hellstrom keeps like slapping him on the back or it looks, it's like he's messing with him. Like, did he recognize him? You know, you don't really know, but they show a scene of him getting whipped and he has all the marks on his back and Hellstrom keeps tapping him and like, Hey, yeah, buddy, yeah, yeah. you know, and all that. They too. Quick yeah. thing. Uh, uh, most uh, reservoir dogs, the, the title is almost like what's in Marcellus Wallace's briefcase. No one really knows for sure. 
the most popular story is Tarantino worked at a video store. He recommended a movie called Au Revoir, Les Enfants, to a customer who misheard it as Reservoir Dogs. Another another uh, version says wow. Tarantino uh, is a t- another suggestion is a title is a hybrid of Au Revoir, Les Enfants, and the 1971 exploitation movie Straw Dogs, which makes sense when taking into account how big of a movie buff Tarantino is. But still not very convincing. Sam Peckinpah. Yeah, Sam Peckinpah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. he never said. So that's another thing I love about Tarantino. There's certain things that he likes to keep to himself and let the rest of us just uh, debate it. You yes. know, I'm, and I'm sure I'm, I'm thinking that we're all probably going to end up with the same number one, which is great. Um, but if we don't, my number two is Bastards, which uh, Joe just talked about. I remember hearing about this years beforehand that he was writing some kind of a, a World War II story uh, freehand and had written a thousand pages for it or something. I remember hearing about Bastards way back around maybe um, Jackie Brown time, which was about 10, 12 years before he actually made Bastards. Once again, and the only thing I can offer that we haven't discussed yet is that he was looking for an actor that could speak Italian, German, and Austrian couldn't find anybody and was going to rewrite the parts so that the guy was in French as well. Sorry, Italian, German, French, Austrian. I'm probably getting this wrong. He needed a guy that could speak all four of these major uh, European languages for the Germans that were inhabiting the, the area. And he couldn't find anybody. He auditioned everybody. So he was going to rewrite the part to eliminate some of the languages. And then they found this. We got one last guy. This might be paraphrasing to basically Christoph Waltz, who I think was maybe like a soap opera performer in Austria or something along those lines. Not a big star anywhere. Came in, killed the audition, got the part, and became basically an international superstar. Which, you know, the say, the saying he was born to play this role literally is the case to play Hans, uh, I want to say Hans Gruber, Hans Lanza. Is it Lanza? Lanza, yeah. And he got the Oscar. I think he won the Oscar, didn't he? Didn't we, we I believe that before. See, but yeah. I just thought that was, you know, I love stories like that we kind of become a little bit, you know, you hear these type of things, uh, but, you, but you get a little bit, what's the word I'm looking for? You get a little bit uh, hard, hardened to, to life. And when you hear a story like that, that's a pretty cool, like dreams can come true moment. Cause I think the guy was in his mid forties when he got the gig, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Such, such so a classic. Good. So amazing. And uh, like I said, he, he had a great ensemble cast. Uh, Brad Pitt was awesome with the snuff. <laughs> which is something we used to do in high school, which kind of disappeared, which is kind of like chewing tobacco, but you put up your nose and sniff it. <laughs> it gets a little bit high. Yeah. Strange casting for, um, what's his name? BJ, the, uh, office, the guy right? from The Office. That, that, that's little that's a little, little bit of bizarre casting there. And he's like in such a significant role at the, at the end of the film too, you know? Did he maybe want like a nerdy type guy or something or? I don't know. Yeah, like maybe a smaller, skinnier guy. Because remember, his nick my, my nickname's the Little Man. They call me the Little Man. He's like, I thought he could have had, had Steve Buscemi do so, you yeah. know that role or something like that. Anybody, any of the regulars. Yeah, it's just strange casting. But and that was like in the prime time for the office yeah. too. Around that, uh, just so yeah. you know, Mike, you were right. There was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, and uh, Chris Waltz won the Best Supporting Actor. Wow, to go for. To go from like you know obscurity to win the Oscar yeah, and yeah. yeah that's insane. Who else has a number two? You got a number two? It's probably not what you think. It's probably what you think is number okay. one, but it's Pulp Fiction. Mm. So uh, is you know uh, up until two years ago, I thought Pulp Fiction was his 
masterwork, his masterpiece that will never be topped. That's his Sergeant Pepper. Uh, you know, that's his Dark Side of the Moon. That's his, you know, uh, 2001 right. Space Odyssey. So we'll get to my thoughts on Hollywood after that. But Pulp Fiction has now been moved to the number two position. And, you know, it's just a perfect, perfect film. Coming off of Reservoir Dogs, it was like, how do you top that? And I remember going to see Pulp Fiction opening night in uh, 94 and just my jaw was on the floor. Like, And I think I went and saw it again the very next day. I think it was yeah, one yeah. of those movies where I had to go again immediately. And uh, the nonlinear storyline was was incredible the fact that like you know it's you have it starts with the whole john travolta and samuel jackson story then it goes you know john travolta goes into the whole story with with uh, uma thurman yeah, yeah and then you have this whole bruce willis story but then john travolta pops up in it and gets killed but then john travolta pops <laughs> yeah. up again later with yeah. with samuel jackson and harvey Keitel cleaning a car it's like it was mind-blowing, the fact that you could tell a story like that from so many different perspectives and take a timeline and jumble it up like that. And Travolta, you know, Travolta at that point was only doing, you know, Three Men and a Baby films. Yeah. Like, he was, he, nobody was thinking about John Travolta anymore. He had been pretty much off the map for about 10 years at that point, you know. So to bring back Vinnie Barbarino or, or you know, uh, you know, from this guy from Saturday Night Fever in Greece to bring him back in 1994 and give him such a cool role. And all the supporting cast from Eric Stoltz to R Rosanna Arquette, uh, you know, Harvey Keitel popping up. Um, it was just it was just perfection. And, and it still is. It's one of those movies that you can't turn off if it's if it comes on TV, you, you can't turn it off and you could watch any scene uh, or any portion of it and be completely entertained. It's just a masterpiece on every level. Uh, the cocaine, the, the heroin sequence with the overdose, uh, girl, you'll be a yeah. woman soon. I mean, that scene uh, like blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. And then the adrenaline shot. I mean, it's scene after scene after scene is classic. And the Bruce Willis and Ving Rhames uh, getting captured and being tortured. And that was like a, a pit in your stomach of, of fear and dread. Like mm -hmm. uh, it was, uh, it was just uh, scene after scene is just so amazing performances the writing the way it's told you know what can you say that that everybody hasn't said a million times about it already it's just such a classic here's the thing that so i don't know if you guys have put this together and i don't know you know it's it was uh, i think tarantino confirmed it so bruce wilson and travolta had that confrontation at the bar right he's like you're not my friend palooka all that and he kind of blows him off and then the next scene travolta is going to buy higher when he talks about how someone keyed up his car you don't key another man's automobile right so Bruce Willis keyed his car on his way oh. out. Wow. <laughs> like just little things like that. You could watch and then only for them. Yeah. And then only for them to re re meet each other when Travolta's on the toilet. Yeah. He's constantly yeah, going yeah, to the yeah. bathroom in this movie, yeah, by the way. Reading, and then yeah. the pop the pop tart come pops out. I mean, like the way things come back around and yeah. tie together is just so genius. Yeah. But that's the thing, you can watch it ten times and not catch that. And then eventually yeah. you're like, wait a minute, did he key his car? My <laughs> you know, like, uh, my uh I always like to ask this, what is the actual, because when Kevin and I did this, we were like, we did the watch along. What is the actual last scene in the story that is told? Like if you put the movie in, in, in right. chronological order, what's the last scene? Uh, it's Bruce Willis speeding out of town on the Zed's, chopper. Zed's dead, baby. Yeah, yeah. That's it. That's, That's exactly yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, Zed's dead, once, once, once yeah. Willis right. settles his debt with Marcellus Wallace in the pawn shop, he gets out, he goes back, gets on the motorcycle, 
and they fuck off. That's that's the actual end of the movie. I wonder if anybody's ever done that. I'm sure somebody must have done that online, a chronological, a chronological cut, cut. Of, of, of Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, it, it. I mean, I'm sure it would still be amazing. It would still have the dialogue and the acting, but no, I don't think it would have been as great. I think what made Pulp Fiction so great was the way that it it unraveled in, in out of order and out of sequence is what made it so genius. Well, once again, too, you have to pay attention to that movie. And that, I was going to say this earlier. Right? Well, actually, we could talk about it when you, when you talk about Hollywood, but. It's the end of an era for a Tarantino movie. People have such short attention spans. I wonder if he's thinking, who's going to spend two and a half hours watching just my movie and even understanding what I'm doing? Because if you don't watch Pulp Fiction, once again, from, you know, everyone laughs about, yeah, I had this, this very nice watch. It stuck it up my ass. If, if, oh, if, yeah. How, that's not just a funny sequence? story. No. That's the whole reason why Butch goes back to get the f- watch. Which is what puts him in danger. Because right. most people are like, leave the watch. Who cares about the watch? It puts him in danger and it kills yeah. Travolta. And he could have just drove yeah. away. But the stupid watch caused all this other stuff. But there's a reason for it. And that's just one of the brilliant moments of that film. We can talk about it more. Uh, Joe, what do you got for number two? Once upon a time in Hollywood. But I'll uh, I'll just defer now because I know we're going to talk about it a lot when Mike places it at okay, one. Okay, so I got, I got I got Pulp Fiction at number one, so let's we'll just get all our Pulp Fiction out. So go ahead. So I One of the things that, uh, for Pulp, which obviously was my, my one, is uh, we've mentioned all these great scenes, but we haven't mentioned yet the, the you know, rape of Ving Rhames, right. which at that time... Once was, again, envelope yeah, pushing. Yeah, and, you know, scenes like that was like out of Deliverance, you know, it was almost as, as uncomfortable as a scene in Deliverance, but uh, yeah, and then, of course, Bruce comes in with the sword, and that's super violent too, but... Yeah, at the time, you know, to have like a like a gay rape scene in a film in the '90s, in which became a major movie, was definitely envelope. But the thing is, too, though, it's not just. It's the same thing happened with uh, with the fight, uh, the Mandingo fight in uh, Django. They don't just show it for a second where you get the idea. They're show. They're he rams it down your throat, like Ving's got the yeah. ball gagging and he's getting pounded for like five, ten seconds. You're like, we get it already. Mm-hmm. Like, stop. I don't want to see this. Help him. Yeah, I don't want to yeah. see, once again, I want to see Kurt Russell continue to punch, you know, the woman in the face or see the black dudes, the Mandingo, the, the slaves killing each other, ripping each other's eyes out. Like, we get it, you know? But then I love the way Tarantino sets up Bruce Willis looking for what weapon he's going to go back in uh, Yeah. And, and then, of course, it ends with the yeah, samurai yeah. sword. I mean, that's so... So I also love, uh, there's so many, I mean, once again, like you said, Mike, you could quote that thing all day long and I'm going to get it wrong, but you guys know what part it is when, when they're in the bar, you mentioned Paluki or his, his, uh, pack of red apples and the bartenders ask him a question or something. And then, and then the guy goes, my name's Paul. That's between y'all. And then he goes, why the, he goes, why the did you ask me then? <laughs> All right, yeah. you guys convinced me. I gotta put Pulp Fiction. It's back hard, right? Switch. I, mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, really. I think the only reason. I mean, obviously, Hollywood is my number one right now. But I think the only reason is because I've seen Pulp Fiction right. like a hundred times, you know. And and it's so embedded in pop culture, like it's almost. It feels like played out to me. It's almost like not liking Russia's moving pictures. It's just like Bingo. I've heard it a million times. But you can't take away how the impact of it and how genius it is. And so I, I, I might have to like rethink <laughs> this. I think maybe I think Hollywood for me is my current number one just because it's so fresh, so new. And I'm just so I loved it. I loved yeah. it. Should we 
Should we still talk about Pulp Fiction or should well, I move let's, on to Let's finish Hollywood? up with Pulp, then we go to Hollywood. And let me say this. When yeah. I saw Hollywood, I walked out of there going, this is my number two. And then let some time go by, and that's why it ends up at number four. But it could end up at two or maybe even one. It, I just need a few more years with it. Here's nothing but yeah, Pulp right. Fiction yeah. why it's so genius. And like you said, Mike, it is cliche. Hey, do you want to hear Enter Sandman for the 9,000th time? Bottom line is, it's still Metallica's <laughs> right. best written song. It's a masterpiece all the way across the board. The thing with Pulp Fiction is nobody had ever seen a movie like this. Maybe you've seen Reservoir, but Reservoir was not a big motion picture. And one of the reasons why Pulp was is for the reason that you just said. It had John Travolta in it. One of Hollywood's favorite son, his big comeback, that this hot young upstart put him in this movie. We've never seen John Travolta in a, in a lead role that meant a damn in 10 years. Yeah. And he had a giant dance sequence. Yes. First time since Saturday and Night Fever. And it's great. He's, he, and, and he's kind of, I also love the fact he's kind of paunchy. He's got bad hair. Don't forget about that. You know, it, but it, it just works. Samuel Jackson, what the f*** was he wearing? His wig and that. It's just, yeah. they just look like skids, but it yeah. works. It, it's it's so well done. And uh, I think because it is so embedded in our mind, another of my favorite scenes is is uh, 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 they go to Jimmy's house and, and their clothes get all bloody, so he gives them clothes to wear. And it's like, you guys look like a couple nerds. They're your clothes, mother. <laughs> <laughs> washing his hands, and he goes, come on. I, I washed them. You watch me wash them. Yeah, but my towel at the end, it looked like a goddamn maxi pad. But you, you missed the point, too. That's where he goes full on Barbarino. You watch me wash them. <laughs> but uh just all the way across the board just a, a masterpiece genius of a film uh that did change cinema because much like anything else any type of rock and roll that gets over whatever there was a hundred pulp fiction type movies that came out after that just trying to yeah. capture that vibe yeah totally now, have either of you guys ever gone to jack rabbit slims it exists no, there's a real one yeah it was a real, real restaurant. Yeah, I think there's only Whoa. one or two. Yeah, where? I'll, I'll confirm. Yeah, I think it's in uh, California. I've, I've, I've always said that. I've always said that. I can't believe Tarantino sure. didn't open one and literally have the cars for the table booths and have the you know the the, the Buddy Holly <laughs> and the Marilyn Monroe and and that, yeah, I mean no, it's a natural. That's Jane Mansfield. That's Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, <laughs> that's Marilyn Monroe. And by the way, that was, you know Buddy Holly was Steve Buscemi. Yeah, of right? course, of course. Yeah. What does he say? What's his line? Like, how are you, Cindy Lou, or some? It's whatever he says. Oh, man. Uh, great, great stuff. Well, let's go to, to, to number one. Though Mike's number one, which could be number two, but still one of the best. I, I mean, I'm second guessing it now, but I, re I really, really loved Once Upon a Time in the Hollywood. And I've seen it about six times now since it came out. I went opening night, and I got to admit, on first viewing, I, I was a little disappointed because in my head, before going in, I'm picturing, okay. Tarantino does 69, Tarantino does Charles Manson, Tarantino does, you know, I'm picturing the music, I'm picturing Hollywood, I'm picturing high action, uh, you know, so, and what you end up getting is a, a buddy film with a lot of dialogue, a lot of Western, the, all the stuff that was filmed, you know, the country, the, the Western film that, that uh, yeah. Rick Dalton is filming, so a lot of it takes place there, and then, uh, so I think upon first viewing, I might have been a little disappointed, but then I, I saw it a second and third time. And then since then, I've seen four or five times. And, and every time it gets better and better and better and better. And, and I love, I mean, the fact that he changed history is, 
at first it was really weird, you know, and, and you, you're, you're watching the whole film, watching Sharon Tate, like saying, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to see her get butchered by, you know, by the Manson gang. And I love all the actresses that were part of the Manson gang were incredible. And then meanwhile, here we have this movie you, you think is going to be about Charles Manson, who's, and he's yeah. only in one scene. So, you know, I, there was so, so many things that Tarantino was playing with us with it. But I've, through the years that I've watched, rewatched it over and over and over, I think it's just masterful. It's so, I mean, I love the music. I love the way that the soundtrack is all coming off the radio, kind of like King yeah. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s. All the, but, all you know, the driving all, music, yeah. Tremendous. It's amazing. I love all the stuff at Spawn Ranch. Uh, I love all the girls playing the Manson girls. The whole scene... You know, with Vanilla Fudge and 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 Brad Pitt yeah. tripping on the on LSD oh, when, yeah. when when they come in, it's Tarantino at his best. And uh, every time I rewatch it, I can't get enough. I can't turn. It's another film like Pulp Fiction. If I'm watching it on cable, I can't turn it off. I get sucked in, and I ended up watching it all the way to the end. And I like that it has a happy ending. You know, you think you're you're going to be watching a film with the ultimate like slaughter right. at the end. That's going to and it, it's not. You don't get that. And uh, I just loved it. Loved, loved, loved it. And, uh, you know, he says he only has one left in him. He's only going to make one more. I don't know how you're going to top that. You know what I, I loved about that? And first of all, I will say one thing, uh, just going back to Pulp for a second. Is there another song that's not like Star Wars theme written by John Williams, etc., that is as uh, attached to a movie than Miserloo is with Pulp Fiction? <laughs> like when you hear that, like I, I challenge anybody to hear that song and not think Pulp Fiction at this point in time. If you're from our generation right. or older or, or or younger, if you're from the surf time, maybe, but that is so connected to that movie. I just wanted to point that out. I, I would challenge it. With, the only one I could think of that would challenge it was uh, Tubular Bells for The Exorcist. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Everybody thinks that that's the theme from The Exorcist, but that was actually an existing existing piece of music before The Exorcist. But your point is totally well, yeah, exactly. well, well put. I mean, the, uh, the one wrestling reference for the show would be Paul E. Paul Heyman then took Miserloo and, and used right. it in ECW where he would combine 20 promos into what was called Pulp, fate, pulp yeah, Fiction Segments. Pulp Fiction promo. So we go from one guy to one guy to one guy to one guy. Oh, I, was, that was, I remember those so well. I, I'm officially swapping them. <laughs> pulp Fiction is my one. Hollywood is my two. I'm, I'm making but the There's swap. a couple of things that I love um, that you said about Hollywood as well. And like I said, I loved it because I love the actors involved and not knowing. Thank goodness I didn't have any spoilers for that movie. And this is the I didn't. Once again, I'm sure you do the same. I do. I will not read anything. Don't tell me a thing. I maybe went opening night or second night or whatever. So I thought for sure there was a couple moments when they went to Spawn Ranch, and Bruce Dern is in there, and you think he's dead, sleeping. I thought for sure those chicks were going to murder Cliff. I thought he was done there. Then when we get to the end and Cliff's all an asset, I thought, okay, these guys are going to kill Cliff and maybe leave Rick because they don't know he's there, and then go kill you know, Sharon and all that stuff. I had no idea that Rick and Cliff were going to kill the guys and save the day. None, none whatsoever. So when it happened, I was legitimately like, yes, this is awesome. Yeah, I can't right. believe yep, it. Cause right. like you said, when, 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 when Sharon goes to the movies and watches herself and it's so innocent, and just so awesome. And I was like, this sucks. Like she's going to get butchered, yeah. you know, and they didn't do that. So that was a real cool surprise for me watching that. I think my, my favorite scene from that, and it's, it could contend for favorite scene from any Tarantino movies after uh, Rick Dalton blows his lines 
and DiCaprio goes into oh, the trailer yeah. and like goes shit and smashes everything. It's because you're drunk. You're drunk last night. You had eight whiskey sour. Why'd you have to have eight whiskey sours? And he uh, he's, he's like getting. He starts drinking from his flask and he spits it. I was like, ah, oh, goddamn it! And throws the flask <laughs> out the door and he's losing it. Oh, so good. And another thing about that is you, even if you don't know the stuff, like I'll, I'll be 40 this year. So some of the references, I'm not really like, I don't, I didn't know what Lancer was. I didn't know who Jim Stacy was, but it gets you to look into right. stuff like that, you know, and then now you understand the movie a little bit better. So, but yeah, that's, it was my two. And, uh, I, I have the Blu-ray, the Blu-ray is a little bit extended. I have the novel now, which adds so much to it. And it's, it's an all time favorite. There's, there's two last things I want to talk about. Or Mike, you got something? I was just—I was going to say the bonus scenes that are on the Blu-ray too. Uh, like the, the, there's a few more Charles Manson scenes on there, which is really oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah, and uh, you know the references to uh, what was the the house that the people who was the guy that owned the house before? Uh, oh uh, no, no, uh, no but, Terry uh, Melcher. Yeah, exactly, Melcher, yeah. exactly. I mean, so a lot of that stuff gets a little deeper, and there's also in the book the extra scenes with the 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 girl, the little child actress and stuff like that so yeah the the, the bonus scenes are, are worth checking out if you haven't seen it. i love the uh, appearance of kurt russell once again he's awesome in it um i think his wife is actually zoe bell isn't she, oh, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah, she's the one who yeah. tells him to get the hell set great great scene with uh cliff fighting bruce lee which is awesome i know that tarantino got in some heat from bruce lee's family but it was amazing like just like now he's fighting bruce lee this is the coolest character of all time i love cliff booth and to top on that, there's the one scene where he kind of just jumps up the roof. Like he has to fix the antenna and he just kind of like Spider-Man's his way up there. Yeah. And he puts <laughs> a beer in his tool belt just whoosh, like, and then jumps this up. This is great. Takes his shirt off. He's all buff and everything. Yeah. But- and I just, I, I love seeing that world, 1969. Yeah. Like, like th- there's that one scene where sun is the sun is going down and you could see the Taco Bell lighting up and the Cinerama th- movie theater lighting up and you know it's like dusk and and just to see that world to see like Hollywood in 1969 with the the Playboy Mansion and Steve McQueen and you know yeah. it, just to be in that world for like two and a half hours just felt so amazing. You know I I like the fact that he cast DiCaprio and and Brad specifically DiCaprio he feels like an old time. 60s movie star he actually feels like a 40s movie star to be honest with you but he has that vibe and brad has it a bit too of being from a different time in hollywood clooney has it as well like it's not just the typical like seth rogan stoner like whatever these guys show up to premieres and tuxedos mm-hmm. like you know what i mean like they they feel like legit time spanning movie stars so when they were Cast in those parts, I really believed it. You are. I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. No, I was dumber than that. Something like Rex. Yeah. You know, like if there was a time machine, I would believe that DiCaprio would be doing these westerns. You know, that Al Pacino booked for him when his career yeah. was going <laughs> down. Schwartz, Marvin, what is this? Marvin Schwartz. 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 Marvin Schwartz. Schwartz. Not Schwartz. 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 You know, Tarantino <laughs> talked about in interviews, he talked about doing two or three episodes of Bounty Law. And I was like, oh, come, yeah, do that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so as, as, as we wind down here, we went through the 10 and we talked about how genius basically most of them are. And we've also spoke a few times about how Tarantino has said he's, he's got one more movie in him. I'm looking right now, he's 58 years old. Uh, you know, I'm 50. Mike's a few years older. Joe, you said you're about to be 40. 58 is not very old, man. 
I can't believe he's going to do one more movie and quit for good. Well, he just had his first child. Right. And he he moved to Israel. He's living in Tel Aviv, Israel right now. Wow. So he's not even in LA anymore. So he's, I think he's at a place in his life where I think he wants to make one more because he loves film so much, but it sounds to me like he's in a place in his life where he wants to be, be a dad or a husband and, and have this, this, I don't know, this, this kind of next chapter of his life. And maybe a, like a novelist. I think he could. Oh, the book yeah. was phenomenal. I mean, and I'm not a reader either. And, uh, you know, and I was reading it and it's like suddenly, you know, one scene that maybe in, in the movie would have taken 15 seconds, you know, Cliff looks over there and he sees, some, you know, in the book, it'll go for four pages with all these backstories in his mind and things that it reminds him of and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I would love to keep reading. And, and we didn't even talk about his screenplays. I mean, we're only talking about the films he directed, but tr- as far as I'm concerned, if we were just doing a top five and with no rules, True Romance would be in my top five sure. Tarantino film. Yeah. And he didn't even direct it. But if you, I mean, this box said it's included in there as if it's, as if it's one of his films. And I think uh, talking about people reading his dialogue, I mean, True Romance is just, that's a, a masterclass. You know, the scene between Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken oh, wow. yeah. is unbelievable. The scene with Gary Oldman, even Brad Pitt just sucking on the bo- the, the honey bear bomb <laughs> yeah, or, or, or J- James Gandolfini. I yep. mean, like True Romance, I think, is one of the greatest Tarantino films ever made, and he didn't even direct yeah, it. Val Kilmer as, uh, you know, Elvis or his, right. his whatever, his spiritual guide. Yeah. That's another quote. That's so quotable, True Romance. That, well, and, yeah, and, absolutely. And, and, and I'll even throw in, too, being a, a big horror movie fan. I mean, don't forget From Dusk Till Dawn, which is also yep. genius as well. Mm-hmm. So what do you, what have you guys heard, the final question here, about Tarantino's 10th movie? The only thing that I heard is something I just read couple weeks ago that he did an interview it said it will say as mike always said the fifth film by tarantino the eighth film he says it's going to say the last film by oh, quentin wow. tarantino in the trailer etc because he says that way he can't go back on it right wow. but then again motley Crue signed his secession <laughs> agreement to, to retire but have you guys heard any rumors about what the movie might be ba- about? The only thing I've heard, he, he, there was the Star Trek film yes. that he was going to be doing. A, but I can't picture that being his last film. Yeah, I don't like that idea. And then he also recently said in an interview that he thought about doing a remake of Reservoir Dogs as his last film, but then discarded it. So he, the thought crossed his mind, but he confirmed that they, he's not going to be doing that. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't like that either. I wouldn't like that either. How? I mean, what do you do? How do you How could how you, you put ca- a, how could you, a, a yeah. final... How do you put a final period to a career like this? Like, how could you cast that any better? Yeah, exactly. It says in this Esquire article that he was writing a thriller set in the outback in the '30s, a Bonnie and Clyde esque story. So that could be. But he does a lot of writing. He writes just to <laughs> write, just to do characters, right, just to write right, dialogue. Right, right. You know, Bastards, like you said, was like this huge novel before he turned it into a screenplay, and he had all this extra stuff for Hollywood that he put in the novel. So he could, he probably has a lot of things that he's juggling and going, what's it, what's it going to be? I, I wouldn't mind if it, if it uh, takes place in modern times, because his last four films yeah. have been period pieces. So it would be nice to see him go out in, in something in modern time or, or in future times. He's never done anything in the future. I don't know if that's really his style, but you know, I wouldn't mind seeing something like Pulp Fiction where it takes place in the modern day. Uh, and, and does he really have a style? He, he, he does whatever he wants. If that, if that idea strikes him, he would do it. Even Reservoir Dogs, you know, it takes place, you think, in 1992, 
But they're all wearing like 50s suits and stuff. It could have very well been in the 60s. Well, and the music is all from the 70s, exactly. Right, yeah. But it has to be sometime after like A Virgin came out. Because it opened oh, right. you know, sometime that's after right. 85 or whatever. That's right, know? that's right. Last question for you. What are your uh, top three favorite Tarantino characters if you had to pick three? And I'll go first while you guys think. No particular order. Cliff Booth, Vinny Vega, Vincent, Vincent Vega. God damn, it's a pretty Good milkshake. Told you. I don't know if it was worth five dollars. It was pretty good. And uh, 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 is it Colonel Lanza, Sergeant Lanza? The, I think he's the, a Colonel. I think he's a Colonel, Colonel Lanza. Yeah. Those are my three from from Blasters, from Pulp Fiction, and from Once Upon a Time. I'd say Cliff Booth, Butch, Butch from Pulp Fiction, Bruce Willis. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Whose motorcycle is this? It's a chopper, baby. Whose chopper is this? Zed's. Who's Zed? Zed's dead, baby. It's dead. And then, um, oh, that's tough, man. Uh, not not Vince, uh, the other Vega brother, Michael Madsen. Um, oh, yeah. Vic. Vic, Vic Vega. Yeah, Vic Vega. Vic Vega, yeah. <laughs> are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Or are you going to bite? And that would be what, Vic Vega's in Reservoir or Vic Vega's in Kill Bill? He's in Reservoir Dogs, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Well, apparently, like, Mr. Blonde is is John Travolta's brother. Gotcha. Right? Right. The Vega It's brothers. all part of the universe. Yeah. Gotcha. yeah, the Vega brothers. What do you got, Mike? I'll say Cliff Booth as well. So he made all three lists. I mean, yeah. Brad Pitt was just such a badass and so awesome in that. So the, the ultimate cool, you know? Yeah. Then I'd say uh, Jules, uh, Samuel Jackson nice. in uh, Pulp Fiction. I mean, just quote after quote after quote. What? Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you. Say what one more goddamn time. And then uh, Mr. Pink. Steve Buscemi <laughs> in Restaurant Dogs. Yeah. I don't believe in tipping. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you know what this is? It's the world's smallest violin playing just for the waitresses. Well, guys, it's awesome going through this. Wow, that well, that would, uh, went by fast. It's been fairly long. But let's do this. When they have when he puts out his 10th movie, the three of us will get together and do a review of it. Absolutely. Let's Absolutely. do that. All right. Thank you, guys. That was awesome. It's a date. It's a date. Yeah, a lot of fun. All right. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Normally... I would say Auf Wiedersehen, but since what Auf Wiedersehen actually means is till I see you again, and since I never wish to see you again, to you, sir, I say goodbye.